This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. I'm bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. My co-host Mark Rotella is in Chicago for Book Expo America, but he'll be calling in shortly to join me for an interview with author Ron Miscavige about his new book, Ruthless, Scientology, My Son David Miscavige, and Me. Then PW Senior Correspondent Claire Kirk gives us a live report from the show floor of BEA. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. And for this, I'm joined by PW Features Editor Carolyn Juris. Hi, Carolyn. Hey, Rose. You're becoming a regular fixture on the show. It's great. Nice very, to be here. Very nice to have you here. So um, tell us a little bit about uh, what's happening over in the world of nonfiction. There is so much happening in the world of nonfiction. So much. Give us, give us a sense of it. Uh, I know that you and Mark are speaking with Ron Miscavige later. Mm-hmm. Uh, his book actually debuts on our list this week. It's uh, at number 19 in hardcover nonfiction. Besides that, I mean, there's just all kinds of stuff going on. We've got probably 15 new books out of the top wow. 25. Yeah. So uh, the top debut is Grit by Angela Duckworth. Um, The subtitle of that is The Power of Passion and Perseverance. Angela Duckworth is a psychologist and also a 2013 MacArthur Fellow, also Mm -hmm. known as a genius. And her book is about exactly what the subtitle says about how strength of will will get you through. All right. Uh, If only it were that easy. Um, this actually was a big book for Scribner in that uh, they acquired it for seven figures uh, in October of 2014. Uh, she did a TED Talk that at the time had been viewed more than eight million, uh, sorry, five million times, and now it's up to eight million views. Uh, so clearly there's a lot of interest in this subject. Definitely. Also, speaking of TED Talks, there is a book called TED Talks by Chris Anderson, who is the current curator of those talks. Uh, that's at number 12 in hardcover nonfiction. And it's uh, basically a guide to public speaking by people who should know it because TED Talks get things like 5 million views. So people listen to them. Right. Uh, we've also got uh, at number four, a book that sold about 11,000 copies, which I, I should have said some of these numbers are pretty high uh, yeah, for debuts. Especially for nonfiction. Nonfiction, and you know, it's not even the best selling nonfiction book of the week. Uh, that book is Unashamed by uh, his author. Well, his real name is Lecrae Moore. He goes by Lecrae. He's a hip hop artist uh, with a sort of faith based bent. Mm-hmm. That's from Christian publisher BH, and this is his memoir. There is also um, a yoga book called Practically Imperfect by Baron Baptiste. Uh, The subtitle of that is The Art and Soul of Yoga Practice. Um, Baptiste's parents were also both yoga instructors. Hmm. And he had a book called Journey into Power in 2002, which sold uh, has sold about 86,000 copies in hardcover and trade paper. What else? So much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, we we can settle for just hitting the highlights for once. 15 new books yeah, we 25 won't. is uh, pretty significant. Oh, I will say um, Monday's issue, uh, we're going to have a feature on business books mm-hmm. with a focus on things like work-life balance and uh, kind of finding your bliss in the workplace, a very millennial theme. And uh, at number 21 in hardcover nonfiction, is a book called Find Your Extraordinary by Jessica DeLulo Heron. And she is the founder of Stella and Dot, Mm -hmm. which is sort of like Tupperware parties, but for uh, women's accessories. Okay. And so that book had a pretty nice debut with 5,157 copies sold. And so she's got a pretty strong following there. One other thing I wanted to mention, I believe I mentioned this when I was on before, there's this in the coloring book trend of which we talk about every week, probably. Uh There's a little subgenre of these self-published foul-mouthed books. So you'll have these pretty bunnies and kitties and 
flowers and things surrounding a word that I can't say on the radio. So this is like subversive cross-stitch, but, but exactly. for coloring books. But for coloring books. And, it, you know, many of these are people just putting these out themselves. And these mm-hmm. aren't coming from the mainstream houses. Uh, so last week we had a book debut uh, at number 16. I cannot say the name. The uh, <laughs> person is James Alexander. And this week he has something called Release Your Anger. And that sold 13,000 copies in trade paperback. Wow. So that is a self-published coloring book um, for the foul-mouthed at heart. Well, that sounds very exciting. I can actually think of a couple of people who might find that very therapeutic. Yes, indeed. Well, over on the fiction list, um, we've got uh, some big books up at the top. Um, the new number one is from James Patterson, uh, with co-written with Maxine Petro. Um, this is The Fifteenth Affair. Uh, Caroline, I wanted to thank you for pointing out that it is actually just out this week. Um, technically, according to our bestseller list, it was at number 37 last week, but James okay. Patterson is never at number 37. No, no. It must have just been something about pre-sales. So um, this is Fifteenth Affair. It's the 15th book in the Women's Murder Club series um, and uh, Detective Lindsay Boxer is the protagonist, and this time the suspect is her husband. Oh. So uh, that's an exciting new James Patterson title out there for all you fans. Um, and moving down the list very slightly at number two is The Apartment by Danielle Steele. Uh, this is a classic women's fiction style book from Steele, uh, who's made her name in that industry and practically shaped the industry around herself. And uh, this one may sound a little familiar. It's about four young women living in New York City, having women's lives and uh, sharing an apartment and intersecting in a way that may recall a certain television show from several years back, but um, (laughs) perhaps with some salient differences. Then moving down to number seven, we have Bloodline by Claudia Gray. This is a Star Wars tie-in title. Uh, No surprise that it's doing very well. Star Wars books tend to hit the top of the list. uh, They do. Near it. Many of them aren't in uh, hardcover, though. I mean, there have been That's a few, true. but it's it's nice to see them on the hardcover list. And that one's unusual. And uh, just below it, at number eight, is Everybody's Fool by Richard Russo, a sequel to Nobody's Fool. Russo's a winner of the Pulitzer Prize. And uh, we call this one Farcical and Grizzly, a shaggy dog story of revenge and redemption, starting with a chief of police falling into an open grave during a funeral service. So that gives you a sense of the, the vibe. Um, <laughs> it's full of ne'er-do-wells, ex-cons, daily drunks, deadbeats, and thieves. Our review says they all behave badly enough to keep readers chuckling. Um, they announced a first printing of 250,000 copies on this one, and uh, its first week out, it sold 10,000 of those, so it's pretty respectable. And number 11 is Zero K by Don DeLillo. Uh, we gave this a starred review. Uh, obviously, it's a pretty significant book. Uh, he's a big name. And this is his 17th novel featuring a man arriving at a strange remote compound, uh, which is a setup similar to a couple of his other books. And um, we say that the asides rarely drag and they're consistently surprising and funny. And his focus and curiosity have moved far into the future. Much of the novel's attention is paid to humankind's relationship with and responsibility to what's to come. Uh, and what's left behind and forgotten is the present. Uh, so we say that DeLillo sneaks a heartbreaking story of a son attempting to reconnect with his father into a thought-provoking novel. Um, so that's at number 11 and just below it at number 12 is Redemption Road by John Hart. Uh, we also gave this a starred review, uh, called it a stellar crime thriller. Hart's an Edgar Award winner. And, uh, we say that he explores the human capacity for resilience and trust in the face of heartbreaking betrayal. The first announced printing on this was 200,000 copies. So mm-hmm. lots of, lots of big releases coming out. We're really hitting summer blockbuster season. Absolutely. And finally, I just wanted to note one more uh, on the list. At number 15 is Everyone Brave is Forgiven by Chris Cleave. Uh, We uh, gave this a star as well. Uh, It's set in 1939 in London, uh, just as war is declared. And a woman named Mary rushes to the war office to sign up. Um, She expects a glamorous job, but is instead assigned to be a teacher. Uh, And she's a little uh, taken aback, but uh, the children win her over and uh, her class is evacuated to the country, but um, she persuades her partner, who is a school administrator, to allow her to teach a small group of rejected children who couldn't find homes with uh, in the evacuation and are forced to remain. We say that uh, real engaging characters based loosely on Cleve's own grandparents hmm. come alive on the page 
and the book is insightful, stark, and heartbreaking. So that's definitely one for the history fans out there. Yes. And uh, those are the big books on the fiction bestseller list. It's, uh, there's quite a lot to go over this week. There is, there is. Uh, moving over to children's, we have three big releases in children's fiction. Uh, we've got the new Rick Riordan, He Always Does Well. This is um, a book called The Hidden Oracle, which launches his Trials of Apollo series. Mm-hmm. Rick being best known for Percy Jackson and right. all of the associated books in that universe. Then just below that is The Crown by Kira Cass, mm-hmm. which closes out her selection series, um, which our children's director had originally described as The Hunger Games Meets The Bachelor. <laughs> and it really is. It's, it's about uh, – um, the original was about a, a young man, a prince, choosing his bride. Um, mm-hmm. And while there weren't quite fights to the death, it did get a little bit, a little bit nasty. Uh, so books four and five are actually about the child, the daughter of that monarch and the person who he eventually chose. Mm-hmm. So it is a pentalogy. So a book, I believe that's how you pronounce it, a book, uh, five book series, um, which is the same thing that Charles of Apollo is going to be. And then below the crown is A Court of Mist and Fury by Sarah J. Mass. This is the second in her A Court of Thorns and Roses series. And just to give you an idea, this book sold 28,000 copies its first week out. And this is the third of the three books that I mentioned. So wow, lots of kids buying books. Yeah, well, I, I think um, you know, summer vacation is almost here and people might be uh, starting to build up their stashes of vacation reading. Yes. And sand might get in your e-reader. So by print people. Definitely. Definitely. And that way it's easier to replace if you leave it on the plane. That's right. Well, Carolyn, thank you so much for coming on the show. Always great to have you here and get your insight and uh, you know, get a, a real sense of what's on the list. Thanks, Rose. Good to talk to you. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Ron Miscavige gives us an intimate look at his life within and apart from the Church of Scientology. We'll be right back. I'm Lee Eisenberg, author of The Point Is, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Ron Miscavige on the line. His new book is Ruthless, Scientology, My Son David Miscavige, and Me. Hey, Ron, so glad you could join us. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking me on. So uh, just to begin, what, what made you decide to write this book, and, and why now? Well, uh, I'll try to make a long story short. I wrote this book because I wanted to get a lot of attention to the policy of disconnection that the church imposes on its members. And uh, this has been applied to me because my daughters do not talk to me anymore, nor do my grandchildren except for two. I don't know my great-grandchildren except for two, and I don't even know how many how many of them there are. And I think that's a terrible thing to uh, to put on a person who's you know, love for his children and grandchildren has been uh, a long-term thing and not, not something new. And uh, I knew that I would get more attention on this from uh, America than I would if I did an internet blog. And I guess, as you know, or uh, you might not know, when I left the international base in March of 2014, uh, I was followed for about 15 months by private investigators who reported on my daily activities between 8 in the morning and 8 o'clock at night. And then one of them was caught trying to case a house as to whether I should buy it or not so he could be within viewing distance of my house to spy on me. And in the trunk of his car was five handguns, license plates from five different states, an 18-millimeter rifle, a 22 caliber rifle with a silencer that worked on that, and over a thousand rounds of ammunition. Now, even with that being discovered, I wasn't going to do anything. And uh, until October of 2014, we went down to see my daughters, and I wanted to play them a recording of one of the PIs who said to the investigating detective, Nick Pye, uh, this statement, and I'm, I'm going to tell you so we have it on tape. Dwayne Powell was the main PI. He was inter- interrogated. 
And once he realized that he had this silencer in the trunk, he started to sing like a canary. So they started telling their true mission, which was to follow me around and get dirt on me and see that I didn't go to the media or report in any activities of the church. And uh, Daniel Powell, when he was being interviewed, said that there was one point where I was going out to my car. It was a summertime and I had a pocket T-shirt on. And in my left hand pocket, I had my cell phone. Now, I had groceries that I had in a cart and I wanted to put them in the car and I bent forward to do this. I thought the cell phone was going to fall out. So I grabbed my left chest with my right arm. These two PIs, thinking I was having a heart attack, called in to their contact and said, what shall we do? A couple of minutes later, a man come on, identified himself as David Miscavige and said, listen, if it's his time to die, let him die. Don't intervene. Don't do anything. I had that statement recorded on a CD and I went down to see my daughters who by this time had disconnected from talking to me. When I first got out, both my daughters, Lori and Denise, were in regular communication with me daily. In a short time, they were threatened with uh, them being declared as suppressive persons and also them being disconnected from their friends. I wanted to play this statement on the CD that I had of the PI saying this. Spoke to my daughter's husband on the front porch of their house for about 20 minutes. He just wouldn't let me see Denise. He said she wasn't there. I had a handle with the church. Finally, after tap dancing with him for about 20 minutes, I said, Jerry, does this mean you're through with us? And he said, Ron, Denise and I are through with you and Becky forever. It was at that point that I decided I've got to write a book, not just for myself, but for all those people who have been subjected to disconnection from their children, maybe from their parents, friends to friends. And if you're like a Scientologist and you have uh, a job with a Scientology employer and you, you're declared what they call a suppressed person, you lose your job that day. So I wrote this book, as I say, out of duty. Just I, I just couldn't let that slide. Even after hearing what David said to, for the PIs to do about me, and that, that's the reason I wrote the book. And um, I don't know if I answered the question, but there's the story. Yes, you did. Uh, uh, and I you know, would like to return to that a little bit. But I'd like to first get to see you know, what is your history with Scientology? I want to go back a little bit to see what it was that first intrigued you about the Church of Scientology and, and then work your way back because I, I think it's an, you know, an interesting progression. Well, first of all, how I got introduced to it was in the following manner. I was working a multi-marketing scheme, multi-level marketing scheme called Holiday Magic. This is back in the late 60s. And it's just like Amway or any of those multi-level marketing uh, schemes. And I was at what's called an opportunity meeting. And I met a guy there by the name of Mike Hess, who happened to say to this person I was standing next to, I am a Scientologist. And for whatever reason, the name rang a bell with me. So I turned to him and I said, what is that? What is Scientology? So I pinned him down for about maybe 30 minutes and demanded that he tell me more and more about it. And he was willing to do this. So he told me a couple of things to do. And one of them was how to get rid of a headache without taking an aspirin. Just a little exercise you do. I didn't have a headache at the time, so I couldn't try it. But a little later on, I tried this particular thing. When I was driving, the headache went away in an instant. And I thought to myself, hey, there is something here I got to check out. That was the thing that piqued my interest, and um, that's really what interested me in Scientology. And then from that point, I found out that there was a gentleman uh, named Frank Ogle who was in Woodbury, New Jersey. He had a cafeteria, and every Tuesday or Wednesday, I think it was, it was probably Wednesday, he had a meeting in the evening, and he'd go over the various tenets of Scientology, and uh, we'd discuss them and for a couple, three hours, do a little drills and stuff, and that got me rolling. But then the real turning point, or you could say the, the moment of truth came with my son, David. David, his whole life had been bugged with asthma. He, it was the bane of his existence. I mean, he would turn blue sometimes from these asthmatic attacks. And 
I would take him to a doctor who'd give him a shot of adrenaline. I just didn't think giving a little kid shots of adrenaline was any good. So I was always on the lookout for something. So anyway, I asked Frank Ogle, I said, listen, could you do some auditing? That's what the counseling is called, auditing, for David, for his asthma. He says, I'd be more than happy to do it. So I took him out of school one day, took him down to Frank Ogle's. Frank took him in for about a 45-minute session. David walked out, bright, cheery, smiling. I says, how'd it go? He says, man, it's great. He says, I'm handled. And that was the point that I think was the epiphany for David. Because uh, I think at that point, he decided, I'm going to make something out of this in my life. And for me, that was, I, I thought his asthma was cured. It was mitigated, is the fact of it. But the fact of the matter is, he never had a serious attack after that. So that was really the thing that got us rolling in Scientology. How old was he about this time with the, uh, uh, when, he, when he was helped with asthma? Nine years old. Uh, I'll tell you something. He was a, a small kid. He was, well, he was thin, but he was like a little stick of dynamite. Uh, he played peewee league football. I used to have to put two and a half pound weights in each of his shorts pockets so he could make the minimum weight to play on a team. And being that small, he, he could tackle anybody, any size. And as a kid, I'll tell you something. He was, he was a lovable little kid. I had great times with him. We just, he had a great sense of humor. We got along great, you know. It's uh, not the way it is now, though. So tell us a little bit about your relationship with David, your, your, both of your relationships with the church. Um, obviously, things changed. What happened? <clears throat> well, I in 1985, decided that I was going to join the C organization, which is like the, oh, the priesthood in the Catholic Church or the monks. All right. And you're sequestered basically at the place I went to the international base from the rest of society. And the reason for that, well, the reason that's given is so that you could concentrate on the work that you're doing. And you are led to believe that Scientology is the answer to all of man's problems, that by getting this applied to this civilization at large, you're going to improve life for everybody. Now, there may be some truth in that, if in fact that is what is done, because when you get in Scientology, your starting levels, what I would say the bottom of the bridge, the basic things that you learn, the courses that you do, the auditing that you get, is very helpful to you as an individual. I mean, you can go in and have some of this applied and you'll come out being a little more capable or a, a little better able to handle life. And the more of this you do, you realize that this this could help people. And that leads people to want to disseminate it to others. And of course, then if you really want to dedicate yourself, you join the C organization and you make it your life's work. Now, I'm at the international base. And this is in June of 1985 is when I actually signed up and got there. The first thing that I noticed a little bit of a change was I was standing outside the music studio because as soon as I went in, since I'm a musician, as a composer, I would write melodies for various PR videos we did or instructional videos. And that was my full time job, writing music and performing and playing music. I was outside the music studio and I saw David, he was about 30 yards away with his entourage. And I just looked at him and yelled, hey, Dave. Well, he turned around and looked at me and he gave me a look that I know I shouldn't have done that. And it was at that point I realized I was not his father on that base. I was another staff member. As a matter of fact, I tell you. In our relations, relationship and talking to each other, he never called me dad. He called me Ron. And um, that was, I guess, the beginning of it. Now, in the early years in the C organization, it was tough and the hours were long and the work was hard. But there were so many things that we did that were enjoyable that it was very tolerable. This, over a period of years, started to change. And then it got to the point, many years later, where if you wanted to send out a letter to somebody, you had to have that letter read before it left the base. In other words, you would put it in an envelope, 
unsealed. A security guard would read this, and if there was anything in there that they felt you shouldn't be saying, it was sent back to you to correct and write uh, an acceptable communication to the person you wanted to write it to. If you wanted to talk to somebody on the phone, you didn't have a cell phone, you didn't have free use of a phone, you had to go through reception, who would then put you through to whoever you're talking to, and possibly if it were a business or work-related, it would go through. But if you were going to talk to somebody like family or a friend, you would have to have somebody on an extension of that phone listening to the phone call. As a matter of fact, when my brother died and my nephew Gerard called me to tell me this, I had a person listening in on any extension of that call. If you needed something from town, you had to order it from the Internet or buy it from the canteen on a base. You were just not allowed to walk off that base or drive off and go to a local Walmart. These are the conditions that slowly were put in place and between that and some other things but mostly that my life became intolerable to me and uh, i it that was that prompted me to start thinking hey we've got to get out of here and then i planned our escape and of course in uh march march 25th of 2012 is when we left we're gonna take a quick break but don't go away Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Ron Miscavige, author of Ruthless Scientology, My Son David Miscavige and Me. And he's telling us all about daily life in the Sea Organization of the Church of Scientology. Uh, so once you are in Sea Org, are you, when, once you're committed to the program, are you not able to, to leave? Uh, is it something that you've, you've, you, you're then decided to, to dedicate your life to? And uh, the second part of this, um, why the secrecy? Well, first of all, let me answer the first question. Where I was, or any place in a C organization, you just can't do as, let's say, if you were a Buddhist and you wanted to leave the monastery, you would go up to the head monk and say, uh, I'm leaving, and he'd say, okay, and you walk out. You do not do that with the C organization. For From where I was... I could not go up to the gate and say, okay, I'm, I'm leaving. They'd say, oh, here's a box lunch. Have a nice time. No, I would have been seized physically, sequestered for the, from the rest of the people on that base. Becky would have been sequestered separate from me, and we would have been interrogated on a daily basis as to what harmful things we did to the C organization or David that prompted us to leave. It's not the things that we couldn't tolerate. They say you want to leave because you want to stop yourself from committing harmful acts against us. And I would have been interrogated on a daily basis on these questions. Mm. So, yes, we literally had to escape. We couldn't just walk off that base. The full escape story is told in the book. And I'll tell you something. Every time I review it, I say to myself, did I actually do that? Well, yes, I did. And it's a hell of a story. I don't mind telling you. Why the secrecy? In the organization. Well, in terms of, like like what secrecy are you talking about? What they do? Well, when you were mean, talk, like a, why were you not able to have cell phones or to why why was the mail checked before it was sent out? They're afraid that you might say something about your daily activities or the things that are going on that they wouldn't be they wouldn't want known by the public at large. Whatever that is, I don't know, but. There is something that they feel that they should clamp down on. Well, one of the things, one of the things on the phone calls was this. When Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman were there, uh, this is in the 90s, there was a person on the base who was calling his mother, telling him about the various daily activities, and she was selling at the National Enquirer. Now, rather than getting rid of that person and just letting other people have the freedom of being able to talk to their folks or friends, they shut the gate for everybody. But 
that that is one of the reasons. And the, the mail, as I say, is monitored for the same reason. They don't want people to be known. They, they want they don't want people to know what's going on in that base. So, tell us a little bit about your relationship with your son. As you'd mentioned, you he was brought by the time you joined, uh, he was nine, ten, twelve. Tell us a little bit about how um, how he uh, worked within you know from from a boy to a young man to an adult. Tell us about his how, how he evolved within the organization and as a father and son um, how, how that relationship was. Well, first of all, I became very interested in Scientology to the point. Um, in 1972, I sold my house, took my savings, uh, took the entire family to England to study the upper levels of Scientology. And then we were there for a year and three months. And, you know, all my four kids, they all did Scientology courses. My wife and I did. And David became an auditor and quite good at it. I mean, he he took to like a fish to water. He was a phenomenon. He was uh, very good at it. So. That was the thing that appealed to him most, where he could use this technology to improve other people. And then um, we came back to the States for a while, went over again for another sojourn of about a a year and three months. And he went to school in those days. We came back to the States and he was just going to school. And one day I came home from work and he was in his bedroom in bed with his kind of his hands behind his head and. He looked like he was pondering something. And I said, hey, Dave, what's up, man? And he says, I'll tell you, Dad. He says, I I can't take it going to school. He says, all the kids around me take drugs. This is not what I want to do. He says, I'd like to go and help L. Ron Hubbard. And I said, wow, well, it's, what do you want to do? He says, I'd like to join the Sea Organization. Well, he was not quite 16 yet, but um, I remember when I was 17, I wanted to join the Marines, and that was my my goal to become a United States Marine and my father signed for me. And I went and I did that. So I thought, okay, he is good enough at this. And I think he has a passion for it. And I think he could be a credit to Scientology and the Sea Org. So I says, all right, kid. I says, I'll tell you what, I'll help you. Whatever help you need to do this. So I got him some clothes. I gave him some money. And on his 16th birthday, he got on a plane and went to Clearwater, Florida to join the Sea Org. And um, he just within seven months, he was working with L. Ron Hubbard uh, out in California. There was a place they had near San, excuse me, near uh, Palm Springs, where they were shooting movies, demonstrating the various technical aspects of Scientology. And that was it. He was he was in the thick of it. And as he went on. He rose to the top. And when I say he rose to the top. He had a passion for this, and he was a, a very charismatic person, a good speaker, very intelligent. And then when L. Ron Hubbard died, he saw uh, the opportunity to take advantage of it, and he got everybody out of Well, I, I don't know you say he got everybody out of the way, but he just he pushed his way to that position of power. As a matter of fact, there's a little story involved in this, and that is... He had a terrible asthmatic attack one time where he ended up in the emergency room to get it handled. As I say, when Frank Ogle audited him, he didn't cure it, but he mitigated it. But this was a very bad attack. And we, when he came out, he told the person who took him there, he said, listen, he says, I had this realization. Power is not granted. It is assumed. And he assumed the, that power and went right to the top. And then he began running Scientology. That's how he did it. Now, his relationship with me, let's put it this way. The more power that he gained, the less we had as a relationship as father and son. True, on my birthdays, he always got maybe a special meal from some great restaurant in L.A. Had it sent down to me. Really nice. Gave me very nice gifts. Um, Would say dad on the birthday card. But if we talked on the phone or talked in person, he referred to me as Ron. And that was how my life went. It just came. I mean, there were times when he'd come to the base and be there for maybe two months and wouldn't call me on the phone. So it became more and more distant as the years went by. And finally, 
in the the post that I held as music director, there was a young guy who wanted to take that post and I was getting older and he had a little fresher viewpoint on music. So I said, look, why don't you take it? Well, that was a mistake on my part because at that point I used to write music day after day, week after week, month after month, and he approved none of it. So I finally got together with Dave and I said, listen, you got to help me out because I'm working in an area where none of my talent is being utilized. Everything is being disapproved. I even said to him, look, if you can get me a job waxing cars, I'll do anything where I can get a product because it has, as it stands now, nothing I do is okay. And he said, I'll check it out. Well, he never did. And we shortly thereafter that I said to Becky, we got to get out of here. And that was the beginning of my planning. We planned our escape for about six months. When you uh, were doing the initial uh, promotional work for this book, um, your son threatened to sue you. Were you expecting that? Well, let's put it this way. Um, If you leave the church, they have policy they apply to anybody. It doesn't matter who you are. So it wasn't really a surprise to me. I'll be honest with you, Rose. It, it, yeah, it, it didn't surprise me. And what are your thoughts about the church now that um, you've had some space away from it? They are not what they were when I got in in 1970. They've done a 180. In those days, you could go into an organization or as we went to St. Hill, it was quite laissez-faire. But people were there to improve their lives, to become auditors, to help other people improve their lives. And I think it's evolved into an organization that now is primarily interested in making money and not necessarily delivering those services. As a matter of fact, uh, for years, there was a course called the St. Hill Special Briefing Course, which was about 400 lectures that L. Ron Hubbard gave all the technical bulletins that he wrote, and you'd have to go through all of this to become what's called a class six auditor. That course is no longer being delivered by the church. But what is being delivered is, uh, well, not being delivered, what's being pushed for is donations for them to buy new buildings, to show that they're expanding, they buy a building. Well, it's filled with air. You don't have people there. But uh, this is the prime purpose of uh, the church now. And it wasn't that when I got in. And I would advise people, don't get involved. In the book, I give you reading that you could do of various Scientology things. But also, I've researched the area of time between 1850s and early 1900s in New Thought Movements. In in the New Thought Movement, I give references in there. And if you were to study those, you're going to get basically what you could get from Scientology, because I think this is where L. Ron Hubbard got most, if not all, of his information. And these are references that you can get on the Internet for like 99 cents, or maybe you can download it for nothing because they're past the point where they could be copyrighted anymore. And just talking about L. Ron Hubbard, um, did, did, did you meet him? I never met him. Not one time. Uh, it sounds like uh, David met him. David actually worked with him on that movie, on, on the set shooting movies. I see. And did the, did you notice a change in the in in Scientology after L. Ron Hubbard died? Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, that's when I feel it headed in the direction I just described to you. Right. Prior to that, there was mostly the push was to make auditors. An auditor is a person who is skilled in giving counseling and using Scientology tenets, those philosophical tenets that you'd you'd be getting, you'd be delivered with an auditor. That's not what the push is these days. I believe you had read, uh, talked about uh, being violent to your first wife, Loretta. Uh, you and your wife had issues. Did, did this Church of Scientology work with you on that? Well, not really. And I'll tell you that, you know, of course, I, there's a whole chapter devoted to this. So I regret that. And I have no excuses because anytime you resort to that, you're, you're on the wrong side of uh, rightness, I can tell you. But I realized once I got in Scientology that these are the things I would see happening growing up in the cold regions of Pennsylvania. And, you know, it was a tough area to grow up in. And it was that was the way of life. And these things were so abhorrent to me that I couldn't confront them. And I found myself dramatizing them with my wife. 
once I got in Scientology and realized this, that was the end of it. They didn't have to do anything other than make me realize, hey, that's not you. It's something you're dramatizing. That was the end of it. We never had a physical uh, confrontation or an argument from that point on. We argued, but that was over. So what would you say to someone who was interested in becoming a Scientologist or joining the church today? This is going to sound like a commercial, but I'm going to say it anyway. I would say, read my book. Get the gist of how it evolved from what it was into what it is today. And if you want to check out Scientology, there are many independent practitioners who deliver what I consider to be Scientology as it was back in the early days. That That's what I would say. And I, I would not get involved with the church. I just wouldn't do it. We've been talking with Ron Miscavige. You can find his book, Ruthless, Scientology, My Son David Miscavige and Me, in stores right now. Ron, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it, Rose and Mark. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW senior correspondent Claire Kirk calls in from Book Expo America, so stay tuned. Hi, I'm Benedict Tracker. I'm the author of the Alex Ferris series, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW senior correspondent Claire Kirk is calling in live from Book Expo America in Chicago. Hi, Claire. Hi, Rose. How are you? I'm doing very well. How's the show? Tell us all about it. What's the vibe like? The vibe is joyous. It's just, I, I, I actually had to sneak into a meeting room because it is so noisy out there. And there's just this, just this happy chatter coming from the, the show floor. We're on an upper level of uh, the McCormick Place uh, Convention Center. Mm-hmm. And we're one level up from the floor, the exhibit hall, and you just, it's just constant, happy chatter. And in fact, there was at one point, uh, about an hour ago, somebody opened the door to our press office. And as someone opened the door, we heard this huge roar, huge coming from the show floor. And I think it must have been. Kenny Loggins was scheduled to perform uh, mm. Footloose at 1 p.m. on the, uh, in the Quarto Publishing Group's booth, and uh, he, he just wrote a, um, a children's book called Footloose and uh, the variant of, of that classic song. And so I, I never heard anything like that at a at book expo, and I've been going to this for 20 years. Wow. So I, I had heard that there weren't so many celebrities and big name authors showing up this year, but it sounds like you've got at least a few. Yeah. I mean, it's Kenny Loggins. Whoa. He's the celebrity. And, uh, there, uh, Bruce Springsteen did not show up. Hmm. He, his, 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 um, memoir is supposed to come out in September, I believe from Simon and Schuster. But still, Kenny Loggins is a celebrity, and he's here, and there are all sorts of fabulous literary celebrities. Uh, Jonathan Safran Sower is here, and Colson Whitehead is here, um, and Katja is here. So the, the, the celebrities that the booksellers really care about, they're here. Tell me a little bit about what it's like being uh, in Chicago after all these years in New York. I, okay, I cover the Midwest for mm-hmm. Publishers Weekly, and so this is, uh, I am in my territory, uh, and I am with my people, and I have to say, I love being in Chicago. Uh, my my hotel room is the size of a New York apartment. <laughs> it costs much less than a New York hotel room. That is one-tenth of the size. Uh, the, the city, it's been, the weather has been kind of very foggy Mm -hmm. in the mornings and in the evenings. And I have no idea how it is during the day because I'm inside McCormick all day. But, uh, the weather has been foggy, but it's kind of romantic to be in Chicago when it's foggy with a bunch of booksellers. And, uh, the, uh, I've noticed also, even though when Book Expo is in New York, 
and it's much more crowded and it's just the aisles are clogged in a way that they don't feel clogged here. I I feel like it's a it's a more relaxed vibe here and it's a happier vibe and it's less corporate mm-hmm. than Book Expo has seen has seemed to me in recent years. You, it, it, when it's in New York, people really it, it's just it's just a different crowd here this year, and it's kind of interesting because usually when Book Expo is in New York, I don't I know a lot of booksellers because I cover the Midwest, Midwest is you know a huge region. I also go travel throughout the country um, for PW. I've been to Winter Institute three or four times, so I know a lot of booksellers from elsewhere. But here. I keep, it is like college reunion time. I keep running into people I know. And so I, I, I am really happy being in Chicago. And of course, my New York based colleagues might differ, but I think going to Chicago is fantastic. And it's a shot in the arm to book expo to have it move around every once in a while. So our, our listeners who read our BEA show daily, which is available on our website, um, will notice that one of our big headlines is that uh, the big five publishers who are New York-based are maybe less excited than you are about this shift to Chicago. Yes, they are uh, not as happy about having to pay uh, the expense of, uh, of sending staff to Chicago for Book Expo. And there, there seems to be some tension there, some not resentment on the part of Midwestern booksellers and publishers. Well, actually, booksellers from elsewhere as well. But the Midwestern booksellers, I mean, the Midwestern publishers I've talked to, they don't feel a lot of sympathy for the New York Big Five publishers who mm-hmm. are complaining about the expense of sending people to Chicago and having to pay for hotel rooms. And in fact, one publisher said to me last night that our headline should be changed to um, BEA 2016 for booksellers, change of venue or welcome relief for the big houses. Boo hoo. (laughs) (laughs) This Midwestern publisher said a lot of us who are working outside of New York are not don't have the deep pockets that the big five publishers have the big five houses and it costs a lot more it's it's it really is a is quite um restrictive to expect publishers from elsewhere to come to new york every year so why can't the big five they have big pockets they have deep pockets why can't they come why can't they leave uh, new york every once in a while and one Ohio-based publisher, I love his quote in uh, the article in uh, Show Daily. In today's uh, Show Daily, it was Eric Obanoff of uh, $2 Radio in Ohio. And he said, well, it's important to make the New York publishing establishments get off of their asses once in a while and venture out into the heartland. And that sentiment was also echoed by a lot of booksellers that I've been talking to where the booksellers, one bookseller, it was um, Emily Hall from uh, Main Street Books in St. Charles, uh, Missouri. And she said that when she presents to publicists in New York City, she realizes that every time she does this, now she does a PowerPoint presentation explaining where St. Charles is in hmm. the state of Missouri and where the state of Missouri is <laughs> in the Midwest and where the Midwest is. And she says she has to explain that St. Charles is close to St. Louis and is closer to the St. Louis airport than the city of St. Louis itself, that she feels like the New York-based publicists are often so geographically challenged. Mm-hmm that this is really good for them. This helps them become better publishers by, like Eric said, getting off of their asses and getting out of New York and visiting other parts of the country so that they can understand what is going on in other parts of the country as well as understand where place where bookstores are in relationship to one another. So I, I think it's a win-win for a book expo to leave New York every once in a while for these people in New York to 
to what is going on in the rest of the country. Now, in that same article, there were some complaints from small presses about not being able to afford booths at BEA um, because the the prices are still kind of predicated on uh, maybe there's New York prices, maybe there's New York publishers. Uh, has there been any uh, further discussion of that, of the cost for attending BEA, even if you're local? That That is a good point, uh, because I actually just ran into uh, somebody, uh, a publisher who is here, who does not have booth. And he was saying that the same thing, that uh, never before has he seen so many small presses here at Book Expo, and they don't have booths because they can't afford the the prohibitive cost. And I'm I'm not sure what I don't know what the costs are. I wish I actually had looked them that up earlier. I don't know what the costs are, but it, it is it, it it does seem to be Book Expo does seem to be geared more towards the large publishers that can really. Uh, that have the the funds to to really have a presence at Book Expo, and the smaller presses, even when it's not in New York, they still have to pay for hotel rooms if they're coming to Chicago. And a lot of these presses that are outside of New York, they are they are small literary. A lot of them are small presses, literary presses. They just they're also nonprofit presses. They just don't have the funds to be able to afford uh, space at Book Expo. So I do hope that because it does seem much more prevalent this year than I've ever seen before. And maybe it's because Book Expo is not in New York, so they can actually afford to get to Chicago. But um, I think I'm hoping that the ABA in future will really think about having some kind of multi-tier system of, of, payment for book for space mm. at Book Expo so that the literary presses who are here who usually don't even go when it's in New York can have a more visible presence. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So tell us a little bit about some of the big books for the show, um, anything that's getting a lot of talk, uh, both for children and adults. Okay. I haven't read uh, Louisa Ermolino's article on the big books of the show yet, which is running in tomorrow's uh, daily, but I helped with reporting on it. And the booksellers I spoke to for uh, for Louise, for the story on the big books of the show, it seemed to me that the one book that people kept mentioning to me more often than any other book was The Nix, which is a debut by Nathan Hill, Mm-hmm. And it's coming out, but uh, it's it's um, pu- being published by Knopf, and it's coming out in September. And it, it uh, uh, Kathy Langer from the Tattered Cover in Denver was telling me that it was the funniest book that she has read in years. And she said it also deals. It's very timely because uh, there's a, a storyline about the 1968 uh, convention in Chicago. Mm. So she feels that this book is very timely, as well as being really funny, and the writing is just so clever. She she was just raving about it, as as have many other booksellers. Uh, a, a lot of booksellers also mentioned to me The Mothers by Britt Bennett, which is one of the author adult author buzz books, and uh, Colson Whitehead's. Um, it's hard to classify this book. It's it's called the Underground Railroad, and the premise it's like historical, but it's fantastical at the mm-hmm. same time. It's a novel about uh, a, a young woman who is escaping slavery in, in the antebellum South, and in this novel, the Underground Railroad is an actual railroad that has been built deep underneath the surface of the earth. So it's a, it's it's a fabulous read, and booksellers are really excited about it. On the small press front with adult books, uh, Vivian Jennings of Rainy Day Books in Kansas, uh, near Kansas City, was talking to me about uh, French Rhapsody, and that is the third novel by Antoine Laurent. He's a French writer, and his books are translated and published here in the U.S. by uh, Gallic Books. And uh, Apparently, the, the 
the French Rhapsody is another just slice of French life uh, and is a delightful read that uh, Vivian is re- really excited about um, promoting it, when it and selling it when it comes out uh, this fall. And also Milkweed Editions, um, Body of Water by Chris Dombrowski is getting a lot of buzz. And Milkweed Editions also had the big news uh that was announced in, that was uh that we broke in um in Publishers Weekly the daily on Monday, I think it was Monday, about Milkweed Editions opening a bookstore in mm-hmm. Open Book in Minneapolis, which is a building that is dedicated to the literary arts in the city of Minneapolis. So uh oh and the third, uh the last book from a small press is Mala Femina by our own Louisa Ermolino. Okay. And Saraband. Yes, Saraband Books is publishing Mala Femina, and uh, I'm really excited about it. And I've heard uh, one bookseller telling me that she had just read it and was really, really excited about it. And on the children's side, uh, we have some really big books by, by big, big names. Besides Kenny Loggins' uh, picture book, mm-hmm. we have new new books from Marissa Meyer and Sharon Creech and Lauren Oliver and Lee Stewart and Richard Peck. And we also have, uh, I'm really excited about Sava Tahir's uh, sequel to Ember in the Ashes. And this novel is coming out from uh, Razorville this fall, and it's called Torch Against the Night. And uh, she is a children, one of the children's breakfast speakers. I'm really excited about this book. Emily Hall of uh, Main Street Books in St. Charles, Missouri, and I talked about how we would have to storm the stage to make sure that we got copies uh, of uh, Sabata Hur's novel uh, tomorrow morning. It's a it's a dystopian novel, and it's just brilliant, brilliantly done. Uh, I'm also excited about a a novel that I a YA novel that I just heard about this morning, and it's called Diabolic by Estate Kincaid, published by Simon Pulse, and it's like a cross between The Terminator and um, Game of Thrones. Hmm. The author, uh, yeah, the author was describing the book, and it just sounds fantastic. And uh, it, it's she was a history major in college, which I also was, and. Her interests seem to be very similar to my interests, and I'm, I just am really excited to read this book. Uh, another novel, a graphic novel that has just been published for teens by Graphics, uh, is getting a lot of buzz. Um, it's called Ghosts by Raina Telgemeier, and Cynthia Compton of Four Books and Toys in Indiana was telling me that it's, it's really dark, but she thinks that the Teen readers who are sophisticated readers are going to really like it. It's a very clever graphic novel. And uh, on the small press front, I've heard that from several booksellers that No Brow Press's uh, picture book called The Journey is really making librarians and booksellers tear up. That it's it's a picture book about um, having to leave your home to escape war. Mm. And it sounds like a very intense but beautifully written book. So I'm really excited to get my hands on that. And uh, one of the Buzz books was also a, a, by a small press, uh, Cinco Puntos Press in El Paso, Texas. And it's called Rani Patel in Full Effect by Sonia Patel. And I've heard a lot of really uh, great buzz about that YA novel as well. So yeah, I think I think it's a really it's uh, a book expo this year. Even though the attendance is down, I feel like the productiv the productivity is probably up this year because it's not as crowded, and people are able to actually interact with each other and talk. And the people who are here are the people who are here to do business, not just to take a a few hours away from their jobs at the publishing houses to walk around the show. So uh, I I think that I'm hoping that Book Expo, I know it's going to return to New York next year, but I'm hoping that they do in future 
every couple of years take a trip out of New York to see the rest of the country and to bring in uh, new attendees because this year, um, Oren Piper, the head of the ABA, was saying that 65% of the ABA members attending Book Expo this year, this is the first time that, uh, in several years that 65% of them have attended Book Expo. So I think that says a lot because who is Book Expo for anyway? Is it for the big five publishers in New York or is it for the booksellers around the country? I, I'm hoping that, that, um, it, it does come back to Chicago. It's a great city and the comic place is beautiful. Well, Claire, thank you so much for giving us a sense of it. I really feel like I'm right there with you. Uh, I appreciate it very much, and it's always great to have you on the show. Well, thank you so much. It's great to talk with you, Rose, and I'll be sure to uh, tell our colleagues uh, in the press room hello from you. Yes, please do. Please do. And say hi to Chicago from me, too. I haven't been there in a while, but it's a great place. Okay, thanks. And now, a final word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Bridget Hios. I'm the author of It's Getting Hot in Here, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another excellent author interview, and we'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 